Well, hello and welcome to Apostolic Voice. I'm your host, Ryan French. Timothy Haddon joins the podcast today. He pastors a church which he started in the heart of downtown Portland called Antioch Northwest. You can look them up at AntiochNorthwest.com. He's also the curator of a tremendous blog called Search of Kings. Look that up at searchofkings.com. If you're not already signed up to get his updates, you should do yourself a favor and sign up right now. He's written a two-part series for Apostolic Voice at RyanAFrench.com called The Development of Vision. Pastor Haddon holds a degree in addictions counseling from the School of Behavior Sciences at Liberty University, and he's a certified addictions counselor with the state of Oregon and with the NAADAC, which is the National Association of Addiction Professionals. He stays active in the apostolic thought community. I consider him to be one of the deep apostolic thinkers of our time. He's authored an expository commentary on the book of Exodus, aptly titled Exodus, which you can find on Amazon.com. All these things are going to be linked at RyanAFrench.com and in the program notes as well for your convenience. When I read a Timothy Haddon article or listen to him speak, I feel like we're kindred spirits and I hope to be like him when I grow up. Today, we're going to discuss his latest In Search of Kings.com article called The Rise of the Artificial Face, a tantalizing title that speaks to the issue of cosmetics and artificiality within the church and modern culture as a whole. We'll probably divert into all kinds of other topics and go down all kinds of rabbit trails along the way. So let's go. My friend, thanks for taking time out of your schedule to be on the program today. I really appreciate it. Man, it's good to be with you. Thank you for having me on. Tim, I didn't mention your family in the introduction, and I know that your wife is invaluable to your ministry, and, and you have three awesome boys. How's your family doing, and how has the transition to pastoral ministry been for all of you? Well, this could turn into a entire podcast episode. Yeah, but, good. Uh, suffice it to say, you know, the family's doing really good. Um, you know, there was an adjustment to coming here. Of course, my, uh, if you remember, my two older children uh, were born with pretty substantial hearing loss. Yes. So getting here, getting here was all about, uh, you know, uh, cochlear implant surgeries and getting them connected to a school. And But all said and done, uh, not only is the wife doing amazing, uh, not only did we get here and start the church, and the church is thriving, uh, somewhere in the middle of four years, we're looking for our fourth location now. Um, the kids, uh, my oldest, 12, uh, graduated from the need for uh, weekly speech therapy because he has learned how to talk so much, we <laughs> can't get him to stop. Yeah. <laughs> and our, our eight-year-old is doing incredible, and our six-year-old is running the roost because he's the baby of the house, and 
we've started a business and we've got, you know, my wife works on the side and I do clinical work on the side with an outpatient addiction program. And so suffice to say, we're just busy. That's just pretty much what we are. We're busy, but they are doing incredible. And uh, my wife is hands down. Uh, in my opinion, uh, she's one of the greatest yet uh, secrets uh, in Pentecost among ladies. And um, I just wish that more people could hear because you know this, uh, when, when families and people navigate experiences in life, it really adds a dimension to them. And uh, not only does she have the experience of having to learn how to live with me, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, you know, evangelizing and coming from a pastor's home and marrying me, and, you know, I didn't come out of a preacher's home. And, you know, I was somebody that when I was in the world, I was backslid for many years. And so really what she has developed and learned is just incredible. So doing good. And I appreciate you asking that they're all doing very, very good. A lot of people may not know this, but we're actually related in, in a very uh, distant way because your wife is my cousin somehow, like 10 times removed or something like that. But we, <laughs> we technically we're related. That's so, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I for, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, you're right. So what drew you to the study of addiction counseling I can't remember if you were already involved in that in any way when I first met you. Is that something that you were drawn to when you first came to Portland, or or had you had that on your mind previously? You know, uh, prior to coming to Portland, um, you know, I, of course, uh, was shoring up uh, getting my uh, bachelor's degree in Christian ministry and leadership through Hope International. Um, and then shortly after that, I was navigating um, kind of two decisions, and I was still evangelizing, uh, not quite shifting over to, um, you know, coming to Portland, the church plant. Um, I was kind of in an in-between uh, position. I was in prayer. Uh, you know, my first and foremost love in life, and you'll understand this, is I love I love the Bible. I love theology. Yes. I have an innate, an innate passion for uh, biblical languages, although I'm not an expert. I uh, splash around in the shallow pool on both, both ends of the Hebrew and the Greek. And, of course, your dad is <clears throat> somebody that stands out to me, and anytime I get a chance to talk to him, I just love it. But I was really, really drawn towards, I'd gotten accept, accepted uh, over at AGTS, I was going to move over there to get a master's of theological studies. And I was in prayer one day, and it was, it was around the time that I knew that we were going to come to Portland. And um, I just started feeling like God was directing me, saying, which of these two directions is going to, number one, give you more access to the field? And number two, which of these is going to be more beneficial uh, in relationships. Mm. And so I felt, and you know, it really had never crossed my mind. Um, I, by nature, am intrigued by therapeutic models. Um, really, I'm just intrigued by um, anything that I can learn, to be honest. And, uh, you know, I've done a lot of reading with Carl Jung and a lot of, you know, Adler and Rogerian, all these different models. You know, that was something that always intrigued me. 
um, you know, because I enjoy reading guys like Jordan Peterson and you name it. So yeah. there was always that backdrop. And uh, so when I decided to do this, I had a couple options. One, I could push forward to the uh, LPC view, the licensed practitioner counselor, uh, which is a state licensure um, in the place that I'd be. <clears throat> I could do that or I could go into the LMFT, the licensed marriage and family. Uh, be honest, though, I feel like that is a, uh, a heavily saturated industry. Mm. Um, I think I think they, that that is where the vast majority of, um, of, of aspiring counselors are moving towards. And uh, that's a that's an industry that just to be very frank with you, um, you know, unless you're developing some form of new model. Uh, LMFTs just kind of put their own personality in a new face on some of the very same information and, um, and nothing against them. Uh, again, I, I think what they do is much needed, phenomenal. And so then my third option that I got to look at was kind of a niche, um, getting into a niche, uh, in counseling. And, uh, what has always intrigued me about addiction sides of counseling is, the, the physiological and the psychological effects of uh, substances and, and, and digital things and mm, uh, food yeah. and sugar. And that has always fascinated me. You know, how does the brain respond to stimuli that are either digital or chemical or artificial, whatever it may be? <clears throat> and so I got into researching and uh, it just made more sense. Uh, the supervised hours required for um, uh, the state licensure uh, for an addiction counselor. There's three different levels here in the state of Oregon. There's a CADC one, two, and three, and I just got uh, level one, which is also 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 through the NAADAC, which is national. But the supervised hours are much less uh, of a requirement than the LPC. I was eight credits short. Mm. in my master's degree to where I could have been uh, received a graduate in an in in LPC. And so what a lot of people don't understand is that I learned the vast majority of the same things that an LPC would learn, but eight credits short. And I did not have number one. I didn't feel like with a, being a, a church planner, pastoring three children, working a job, I didn't feel like I had the time uh, without getting paid to work on a 4,000-hour supervised program Wow! Yeah. Uh, in order to achieve. And so really, it was out of necessity. Um, do I think it would be neat to have an LPC? Sure. Um, so I decided to go the addiction uh, route. I got my master's degree from Liberty University School of Behavioral Sciences. Um, I got that, and uh, I did an internship out here with a uh, one of the largest uh, clinics in this, in the Northwest, which is primarily mental health and addiction counseling. And um, after my uh, after my supervised uh, internship, I uh, graduated with that with with distinctions, and then uh, finished up for the state of Oregon uh, over a thousand plus more hours of supervised experience, and uh, took the national test what about a month ago and passed. And uh, I'm now officially certified here in the state of Oregon um, to work through clinics like the one I'm at, uh, which I'm an outpatient uh, counselor right now. So that was that was the path I took. And uh, 
uh, I know I elaborated there, but that really gives you the whole picture of, of why I went this direction. Has that complemented pastoral ministry? I imagine it would, because I know as as a pastor, a lot of what we do is is helping people through break free from addiction and things of that nature. I imagine they coalesce really well. Well, you know, uh, when I say addictions, I think the challenge that I face when I talk to a lot of people is I mention, you know, addictions are the primary cognate of what I do counseling. What, again, what people fail to recognize is compulsive behavior mm. is multi is multidisciplined. Like, there's no way for me to sit down with somebody that's got addictions and not touch on relationships mm. and not t- and not touch on codependency and not touch upon depression. Not So there's co-occurring disorders. And so you've got the comorbidity of kind of what came first, the chicken or the egg. You know, was it depression that led to the addiction or was it addiction that led to depression? And so um, to go back and answer that question, um, I remember times when I was, um, I have some incredible graduate level professors that uh, did not just say, here's a subject, write about it, give me a book report. But there were times we had to do Zoom based sessions mm. where they would confront uh, why you use a certain model. Uh, what, you know, tell me why you would do that. They would give me case studies to go through. And I had to literally uh, almost defend my approach and had to be willing in front of other students to be told that I was wrong. And mm. I will tell you this, through my studies and my time even at the outpatient clinic, there were times I'd come home and I would weep. And I'll tell you why I'd weep because, and this is just where I'm going to be very transparent as a minister, having gone evangelized now a little over four years into church planning. Um, ministry, I speak for myself, but I see this across the board. Uh, we can have a tendency to feel like we always have the answer for everything. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm going to tell you what I learned the most from this is I realized um, there were circumstances and situations that before had I not learned what I learned and had the experience of sitting across from people whose lives are very complex and having the backdrop of of. Of, of some therapeutic models of intervention. I'll be honest with you. I felt one time God's been very gracious to me because I look back and there's times I've given very bad advice. Wow. Because I did not see the bigger picture. And, uh, you know, for example, if, uh, if I don't know a pastor that is um, just truly 100% qualified to sit down in an office with uh, a young adolescent who's struggling with uh, addictions, who was traumatized by seven years of child molestation. You no. know, it's one oh, thing goodness. to look at them and say, you need to pray about this. I, I get the Holy Ghost and prayer and all those things. Those are primary. But I'm going to tell you what, trying to approach those things without an adequate understanding of how the mind works and how children can develop uh, personalities and alters to deal with, you know, not everything's demonic. Not everything is demonic or related. And um, so I just really sit back and I'll tell you this in my 
attempt now as a as a church planner and a pastor, my conversations with people are so much more impacting and my counseling with them, even as a pastor, has grown to a place to where I really feel like I can help people and not walk away and say, man, I hope I did the right thing. Mm. I hope I said the right thing. And you know what? It's also taught me to be able to look at people and say, you know what? I don't know the answer to that, but I do know somebody that does. Yes. Yeah. And, and being able to pick up the phone with their permission, not giving details or names, but reaching out to somebody else in the apostolic community, even the Christian community and saying, look, this is the situation that I've got. Um, so it's humbled me. And I think if I can just say this, I think that knowledge if it develops into pride, we misunderstand the intention of knowledge. Knowledge ought to humble us because the more we learn, we realize the less we know. The less we know. It's so true. I was going to ask you, I just finished an article that I've been working on for at least a year now called should Christians drink alcohol? It's kind of a generic title, but it's a pr- pretty in-depth biblical review of of the the Bible stance on on drinking, and I was looking, uh, you know, in in a very non-academic way, trying to research to the best of my ability some of the as someone who has never uh, even tasted alcohol, what the you know what the psychological impact is, and all of these things. And one of the questions that I I kept coming across over and over again is, do depressed people drink? So does depression lead people to drinking or does drinking lead people to depression? Or is it is it not an either or proposition? I just wanted to get a kind of a quick input on that from you. It's just something that's been jumping around in my mind lately. Well, you know, alcohol is among... Uh, the drug classifications, you have stimulants, depressants, um, and there's a book out there. One of the classic textbooks is Uppers, Downers, and All-Arounders. It's, it's just a phenomenal book, and I'd recommend uh, everybody um, investing the time just to get that textbook. Because mm. It really gives you um, an insight to pretty much every single drug uh, that is in existence. And it really gives you the, the, the chemistry of it, the neurological dynamics of it. So alcohol would be a part of what is essentially a downer. Um, it's not like methamphetamine that stimulates you. Um, so when you talk about depression, um, typically anything that would be um, a depressant is going to, um, because it's, it's, kind of shutting down aspects of the brain that are, are important. Um, it's going to lend towards, and most people have realized this, that it's going to lend towards more depression. And um, they have found that, of course, people that do use alcohol, um, it does have the uh, tendency statistically, and research has shown, to cause a rise in uh, depression. And so uh, anybody that, that struggles with, with depression, I mean, just on that level alone, uh, alcohol would just definitely not be recommended. Um, 
But again, time just doesn't permit to go into the into the neurotransmitters, the dopamine uh, that is occurring in the brain, uh, everything that alcohol does to the body. Um, again, I just tell people, uh, alcohol essentially acts to your body as a as a poison, and there's no way around that. No, no, so, definitely not. Um, yeah, there's just no way around that. Isn't it strange, and I think this kind of ties into what we're going to dive into later, but culture has has really advertised, and I know much of that's the alcohol industry itself, but but even the movie industry and the magazine industry and media in general really glorifies drinking as as an upper, something that you know, makes you more fun at parties, makes you just a more fun person in general. But the science, to the best of my understanding, seems to to actually, I know it lowers inhibitions and all of that, but it seems to be in opposition to that mindset that the reality is that drinking can and often does lead to greater and greater depression and even suicide. Absolutely, which is a major part of, of, of addiction and the drug industry. Um, you know, I have found out, and of course we're here in Portland, so we have decriminalized hard drugs as of January 20, uh, 2021. Um, oh, I didn't know we, that. Um, yeah, of course, cannabis, we've kind of led the nation in, uh, the cannabis industry, recreational cannabis use. Um, you can walk into places just on every corner here if you're 18 years old and, um, purchase all kinds of cannabis and the cannabis today is not the cannabis that we uh, remember from, you know, the nineties or the eighties. Um, the THC quality that's in that today is just staggering. Hi. Um, it's proven, it's yeah. proven that uh, adolescents are developing substance uh, induced psychosis based off cannabis alone. And then of course, back to alcohol, um, you know, what it does in your body, like alcohol, has proven uh, over 80%, I believe, the alcoholics develop a deficiency of thiamine, and that can create serious brain disorders. Mm. And, and, and you know, the lack of, of, of thiamine, of course, you got liver disease that's developed, but, you know, thiamine, it's, I, I think it's called, and again, I think it's Wernicke-Korsakoff's syndrome. Again, these are all these things nobody knows, nobody talks about. Right, yeah. What I find fascinating about culture is, is we are willing to sacrifice the common good of the people if, 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 if it's a revenue bringer. And so we know the taxation of, of alcohol and cannabis and, 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 and tobacco are some of the highest, um, highest revenues that, that taxation produces. And so they're never going to touch it. Um, but we also run into, uh, back in the day, remember, they tried to shut it down. And bootlegging oh, yeah. took off. And so, I mean, I think human society has shown that it's going to do what, what's, what society deems as acceptable. Um, and we lost that battle. That was just another one of those secular battles we lost. Uh, society progressively begins to tolerate, and what we tolerate becomes acceptable. And, 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 and once society as a whole, once culture accepts something as a whole, it's almost impossible to take it away from it. And so right now, heroin is not accepted in society. And so it's never going to be as long as the majority of society doesn't accept the 
daily use of heroin. It'll never, it'll always remain a taboo. Well, let me ask you this. Um, Marijuana, you mentioned marijuana. Uh, The kind of the, the classic spin that we get from people is that it's harmless. It's completely harmless. It's the, it's the one drug that, you know, has nothing negative attached to it. How do you respond to something like that? What's your innate response when someone spins it like that? Well, first of all, I would just tell them that number one, they don't know what they're talking about. And again, many of them are referencing uh, cannabis use from a day that uh, reflected a different form of cannabis. Um, and, and that's one of the tragic things is so when people talk about marijuana, uh, they just kind of look at it today and say, oh, you know, that was the marijuana, the hippie days. No, they don't understand that we're living in a day now where um, they are, uh, there's artificial development, there's synthetic um, they're, they're doing it like, you know, butane hash oil mm. where they extract THC by spraying butane, um, uh, on marijuana plants. And then they extract the, the, the THC producing resin gland and chemicals from the plant. Then they, you know, so they heat it off of butane and, and the THC content. So if you've ever heard of anybody called, call it dabbing, if you've ever heard of anybody doing dabbing. Um, it's, it's essentially um, the content of, of THC from dabbing just from this procedure alone is above 90%. Mm. And so again, what people are facing, what they're looking at when they're looking at this is number one, uh, there's all kinds of different developments. Um, there's ways to increase the effects. So to kind of go through a list of major, um, side effects, uh, these are all just legitimate major side effects. So this is what I tell people. It severely limits the available amount of hippocampal short-term memory, proven. It affects an adolescent's brain more strongly than an adult brain. Mm. Um, The ability to hone in on important uh, things while ignoring other things is diminished over time. Um, After last use, it can take years to recover a completely functioning memory. These are all proven statistics. there's the uh, potential for an inability to perform multiple and interactive tasks. I mean, you're, you, you've probably been to a subway. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I, I hate to use <laughs> it, but you've probably gone into a subway and the guy making your sandwich is obviously stoned. Absolutely. Funny, you know, okay. And you will find Wendy's yesterday that, that just happened. Wendy, you'll <laughs> find that they ha- they have a very difficult time multitasking. You'll find that just the prevalence or, or the presence of, 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 of THC in their system at that moment on a, on a THC high is, is interacting with their ability to even multitask a simple job, which is, of course, why when you're driving down the road, you can get a DUI from being under, the, under, un, under cannabis. And a lot of people don't realize that. It's not just alcohol that can give you a, a driving under the influence. If you are found high, that can be treated here in Oregon. That's treated equally with, with being drunk under the influence of alcohol. And politicians certainly don't tell us that we, nobody's out talking about these things publicly. It's, it's really, it's really sad. I have no. seen anecdotally, I'm not a professional 
in any way in the behavioral sciences. But anecdotally, having counseled and worked with people who were addicted to marijuana in various forms, you can see the change in their personality, the tunnel vision that they seem to experience, the uh even just their their motor skills, simple motor skills are constantly affected. And even when they're not under the influence, you can tell that it's like there's some residue, and I don't know the, the scientific process, but there's something like a residue that's still in their brain where it, it gives them a constant fog. I don't know how long it would take them to get out of that, how long they'd have to be clean. But you can you can just visibly see that it's affecting people in very negative ways. Absolutely. And of course, nobody wants to talk about the fact that when you, when you smoke weed, um, it typically cannabis produces a rapid heart rate. So you're at an increased risk for stroke. Mm. Um, there's been associated um, kidney damage, acute kidney failure. Um, you can go down the list. And so anybody that wants to paint cannabis use, not even to mention that just the smoke itself causes causes lung lung damage causes lung issues you imagine you know, it have to anytime yeah. i mean i mean lean over a campfire and just breathe in the smoke <laughs> you know that's not healthy right your body knows that's not a good thing and anybody that wants to say vaping and we don't have time to get into that but anybody wants to say vaping it is that vaping is being proven again we do not have we're just now reaching the point 10 years to where we can have empirical studies done and vaping is being discovered to in many ways almost be as harmful as, as, as smoking a cigarette. And, and we still have not wrapped our mind around uh, what's actually happening, happening with vaping. But we do know one thing is coming out. It's horrible. Not only has it increased uh, addiction, um, you know, everybody says this is a safe alternative. There is no safe alternative. If you're huffing something down into your lungs, that's not safe. Hey, whether it's Chernobyl's factory where you're just breathing in um, <laughs> radiation right. or a campfire, you know what? It's not safe. And it, it staggers me, Ryan, that we live in a day now where, and I, I don't want to get political, but we are so avid about the mask. And being and protecting yourself from the microorganism of, of of a COVID particle, but we are walking around smoking, drinking, engaging in things that are just proven to kill us. It, it's and, and it's really staggering. Of, it's staggering. It's it's hypocritical, is what it is, and. Um, that's why it's very difficult for me to hear anybody talk about uh, protecting yourself from the, the air around you while you stand on the side of the street and make me breathe your secondhand smoke. Oh my goodness! Yeah, yeah. Don't don't preach to me about the environment when you're <laughs> just literally destroying your environment and the environment all around us. <laughs> it's crazy. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I wanted to I wanted to ask you this question, probably just for my own personal uh, interest, but you and I have it in common that, you know, we both evangelized for many years and I'm curious how, how it felt for you 
transitioning from evangelistic ministry to a pastoral church planting ministry? Mm, you're going to get me in trouble with this question. Yeah, well, I, uh, well, let me let me just say this. As an evangelist, and I can't speak for all evangelists, but I can definitely see myself in many evangelists. Um, I thought I knew a whole lot more. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember as an evangelist going into churches and you're plugged in. All you do as an evangelist, you know, I did long-term revivals most places I went. I remember going into places and all you did was you prayed, you fasted, you studied, you prayed people through and you helped do outreach. You, you, you did the evangelistic expectation. And I'll tell you what, when that's the basis for your ministry, it's very easy to get myopic in the fact that you can look out across the church and say, you know what? Um, there's this problem here and there's this problem here and, this pastor should do something over here and do something different here. And, you know, man, this pastor doesn't do that. It's very easy as an evangelist to go in with your limited skill set and everything be based on this, on spirituality. If I can put it this way, the evangelistic ministry, at least for me, was not very pragmatic. It was very spiritual and that's good. I think we need people to come in. Yeah. Who's, who, who, are, who have the time and the ability to invest in primarily spiritual things. Well, when you become a pastor and you know this, it's a whole lot more than just Holy Ghost. It's a whole lot more than just going and, and praying on the carpet, trying to get a word from God for a sermon on Sunday. It's it's Monday dealing with a kid that's run away from mom. Mm, yeah. It's sitting down with it's sitting down with a single parent. And this is something I did not understand until I started pastoring. I've actually called a couple uh, older pastors and I have laughed and I've said, I want to apologize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know that because, feeling. Because what I thought I knew, I remember they would just kind of look at me. And, and I, you know, I thought it was condescending at the time, but you know what? I was, I was younger. Um, I was, you know, man, I was seeing people get the Holy ghost and God was digging things up. And I thought, I thought I knew how to build a church and I thought I knew how to do all this stuff. Well, when you come and you start pastoring or in my case, you dig a church out from nothing, you get one family or a single mother who comes to God, three of her kids or four of their kids or whatever the kids may be. You, you've got one kid that, that, you know, two kids that don't want to live for God. They didn't grow up in this. They've had no benchmark for this. That's a different approach than I'm going to take somebody who's, uh, let's say I win them and they all start responding. They all live for God. I can't go just lay the boom down mm, yeah. on, on, to, on, on children that never grew up in this, that while their mom may have got the revelation and love, wants to live for God, it would be very, very, very uh, difficult in that home for her to start laying the boom down, blanket statements, this is what we do. And so I've learned, I pastor everybody different. Everybody in this church, I approach differently. 
because everybody has a different story and you can't be a toy factory. You know, I can't just say, all right, it's been three months. You line up this way and you're, you got to get it like everybody else. And you know, this as a pastor, everybody's at a different stage in their walk with God. And it's easy as an evangelist to walk in and say, my God, all this needs to change. Well, I don't think sometimes, I don't think I knew as an evangelist just how long it can be to develop robust change in, in earnest and hungry people. I know for um, me, I definitely didn't fully understand how the, the new birth experience really is just the beginning. I think I knew it theologically or, or you know, uh, intellectually I knew it, but I didn't fully understand that if I, go, if I went to a church and 30 people received the Holy Ghost, well, that was great and exciting. And, and sometimes I remember, I don't know, maybe you can relate to this. I remember having moments where 30 people would receive the Holy Ghost and, and I'd go to that pastor after the service and I would think he's just going to be bouncing off the walls with the excitement. And he was excited, but not like I thought at all. And now I look back and I realize he was re- he was recognizing in that moment, I've got a thousand hours of work to pour into these brand new babies because this this is these are babies Mm. who are going to require unimaginable amounts of attention and time and and training and loving and uh Mm. as an evangelist you lose sight of that you've you've just birthed something and now the real work is going to begin when you leave uh i don't think Mm. i fully recognize that at the time i do now for sure you know you just said a word work Mm, yeah, um, I, I told my wife if I were to go back on the field today, which thank God I'm not going. To, <laughs> um, I said I would be a much better evangelist. Yes, and I'll tell you why. It's very difficult for me to hear evangelists talk about how hard their life is. I used to make some of those statements. I used to make the statement about all the sacrifices I made. Mm. You know what? Again, I think when you are insulated from the reality of being responsible for, you know, for us, 40 plus people at this point, I don't think as an evangelist, you recognize the 24 seven paradigm of labor Mm -hmm. that goes in, you know, evangelists can go in, preach his message, stir things up, go home and go to bed. A pastor inevitably might be up at two in the morning. He might be at the hospital. He might, again, it's, it's, it's never ending. And he might be working a job. He might be raising his children. He might be working on education. You know, they struggle with finance. I mean, pastors aren't rich. Yeah. And I, I, I will be honest with you. When I go back and look at my time as an evangelist, I think that I was, caught up in a myopic worldview. Again, it doesn't mean that I wasn't affected, but who are we as people if we can't acknowledge our, our past weaknesses? And that's just what I'm doing, is I would approach it as though I had a hard job. I'd just be honest with you. What I'm doing now, oh my good, it makes my time as evangelist <laughs> look 
I'm going to tell you yeah. what, yeah. like traveling the world and getting going to new restaurants every single time. Yeah, what a blessing. Getting to eat, ste- oh my, good steak and, you know, showing up. And oh, I look now and I think, oh my goodness, I was having the time of my life. Getting to be involved in all of the most exciting services in a particular local Boom. congregation. Yeah. And realizing yeah. one of the hardest adjustments for me, uh, I get going on 10 years ago now, was trying to understand that when you're in a local long-term church environment, every service can't be revival service. Not that you're not pushing to have a move of God, a powerful move of God. You always want to have a powerful move of God, but there's ebbs and flows. There's seasons uh, in, in a church. And being comfortable with that took me a very long time, for sure. But in the defense of an evangelist today, um, there are a lot of times uh, unrealistic expectations we pastors can place. Oh, yes, no doubt. And uh, I think some of that, some of these uh, things, I think there would, it'd be great for evangelists and pastors to get together as a symposium and just really talk about both sides. Because I think that, again, um, I've said this before, uh, you know, you don't work for each other. We work with each other. Yes. And, uh, you know, as an evangelist, I now recognize going in that most of the, most of those places that 40 people got the Holy ghost, that church for many years had developed the culture Yes, that made that possible. Yes. And, uh, I was no savior. You know what I've learned pastoring? I'm not a savior. Oh the, my the, goodness! Yeah, the the, the 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 success of the kingdom of God does not rise and fall on one service. I've recognized that here as a pastor. It's the consistent week in and week out. I think as an evangelist, I used to think, "Man, I'm going to change it all one <laughs> service." Yes, yes. You know, if I don't bring the fire from heaven, then I'm going to have failed. And what I what I what I wish somebody would have told me is, you know, it's okay sometimes to get to a pulpit and strengthen the the work of that local pastor. Lift up his hands. If you did not get fire from heaven, teach on the power of worship. Teach on things that would build that local pastor. Another voice is so powerful to establish things in a local church. And um, another thing, and I find this funny. I crack up about this, and you will too. Is Sometimes as evangelists, we we, we, we we proclaim that somebody can get the Holy Ghost when everybody in the room's already got the Holy Ghost. And, <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I think it's important to recognize and be sensitive that while there's that burden on me for people to receive the Holy Ghost, I can look out and, 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 and again, um, just being sensitive to the moment. It's, you know, God, not, not everything is meant to be like, we're not possessed by God. Like we don't have control over ourselves. And I think it would help us to understand as ministry that God did give us a brain and he gave us eyes and he gave us ears and God uses all those things with the spirit to make decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as an evangelist, sometimes let's be honest, I was so spiritually minded, I was no earthly good. And uh, 
part of that is part that of that way. is youthfulness too you know <laughs> I, I i tell people uh, uh shout out to brother paul elder um he he was so gracious and and i preached for for him a few times and i was extremely young and i i often tell people you know what i what i had in ignorance i i hope i made up for an exuberance and and in just being very sincere you know but but wow i look back and i really and you know part of it is too that uh it, it takes a little youthful exuberance to be willing to to run out and and do all of that yeah. and and it is part yeah. of the growing process i have found yeah. that many of the great evangelists who have been evangelists for a long time were pastors for a long time before they were evangelists and so mm. there's a uh and again, there's a lot of great young evangelists out there. This is not mm. an attack on them at, by any stretch of anything I'm no, talking about no, myself. No. <laughs> uh -huh. it's, it's no reflection on anyone out there at all. I'm thinking strictly no. of myself right now. But I do know many great long-term evangelists uh, who are elders or, or middle-aged. They pastored for a good long while, and they felt a call to evangelism, which God bless them. I mean, that would the Lord would really have to knock me down to get me to do that again, but but they yeah. are able to connect because they they have an understanding having pastored how to connect yeah. and what the different avenues maybe to run down well anyway yeah. i i'd like to talk through this excellent article from your blog searchofkings.com called the rise of the artificial face which deals with mm -hmm. what has become I, I i'm afraid sort of a taboo subject in many churches cosmetics, artificial body modification, and things of that nature. And I thought it was interesting how you began by addressing the common claim that this is a minor issue that should be avoided so we can reach more people with the gospel. Can you walk us through how you handle that criticism? And, and is this a minor issue or is it in fact a major mm. issue? Mm, that's a great question. So uh, if anybody knows me long enough, I'm not afraid to touch on a uh, subject, not for the sake of contention. Uh, I think dialogue is very important. And so this, this subject, uh, cosmetics, um, has really come to the surface for me because of, uh, again, um, my dealing with a lot, again, as a counselor, working with a lot of young people, and the prevalence of depression and and uh, discontentment and suicide mm. go down the list. It's just it's just it's overwhelming. So uh, we do know that insecurity is a major facet, especially in this generation. Major self-esteem, self-worth, all those things. Major problem. And so and social media has contributed to that as well. Oh yeah, and I want to get into that. When, we, when I first decided to do this article, and it's going to be probably four different parts, and, and to be honest, I've been trying to work on this. I'd like to publish something small on this. I was just kind of flabbergasted by the seeming rise among us of cosmetic application uh, in the church. And uh, when I decided to write this, I knew that my first uh, 
the first charge that critics would lay at my doorstep mm-hmm. would be the the old you're majoring on the minors mm-hmm. and um, they would make it a conservative versus liberal or moderate whatever it may be which I don't think that this is a conservative liberal moderate I, I despise those terms those terms first of all because they're often used to silence conversations. And so that was going to be the first charge is, you know what, Tim, you're majoring on the minors. But what they do to silence this conversation is they're not just going to charge me with majoring on the minors, but they're going to go use the the mission to reach the lost. And they're going to use that as the fulcrum to, in a sense, proclaim to me and everybody else the idea that how dare you focus on something so minor when people are going to hell all mm. around us. Mm. And, 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 and that, so when I first started this article, I was in a sense trying to get ahead. Uh, and I have a tendency to do that. I, I know my audience is going to have people that find it favorable and people that find it unfavorable. And so what I was trying to do is essentially from the beginning, hopefully um, become a stop sign to anybody who with good motives or intentions has been conditioned to think that way and make them take a step back and say, no, no, wait a second. You can talk about things that many people call minors without forsaking the mission. And so uh, in that I used, and this is something from the article, I said, this tactic of using the unsaved as a fulcrum of influence to silence principles that may be unsavory in societal culture is damnable. And, And I say that it is. And so I say if, if we're going to do that to one another, number one, we are silencing dialogue. And it's, it's the, we see this even today in society. They go to the extremes to silence those that are not on their, in their camp. Mm-hmm. And so we've seen this with... with it's bleeding with, into the church with, world. Yes, we see this with progressives and the extreme right. So what happens is the, the, the terrible thing that happened on January 6th, where nobody should be charging in breaking things. So they use what happened January 6th as a way to undermine anybody that doesn't have an opinion. And we, those that are on the conservative side, have immediately made every person that doesn't think like us the equivalent of the anarchist uh, Antifa <laughs> that's burning down places like Portland. Right. Mm-hmm. I think, I think I don't care what side you're on. That is a damnable tactic, and it really demonstrates a lack of intelligence and a lack of being able to articulate and have anything to stand on. So, if 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 we want to use that, then we were then, then we would have to label Paul with the same exact thing because Paul. I mean, who do you know that had more of a desire to win the loss than Paul? No, I don't know anybody. Right, you're trying but to position Paul, yourself as someone who cared more about the loss than even the Apostle Paul did, there, which is ludicrous. That's what they do. But what does Paul do? 
all these things that we say are minors, he took the time not just to speak about them. He took the time under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost to write about them. Mm. And so he talks about adornment in 1 Timothy 2 and 9, shamefacedness, sobriety, broidered hair, gold, pearls. So again, if we're going to play that, then we would have to tell him he's majoring on the minors under the same premise. And of course, that's just foolish. So that was how I started the approach to this. And, And I think that that makes sense. Well, we see this not only th- this kind of attack, it's it's kind of a con game because or a cop out because it's an unwillingness to actually deal with the biblical facts, the cultural facts, uh, the psychological facts. And, and it, it's really kind of a way, I think, to psychologically sweep it under the rug and not think about it rather than actually talk through the issue, which is what so many Christians are guilty of today. We don't actually think through our own beliefs in a, in a meaningful way. And people use this same charge for all kinds of, of things they don't like about the Bible. For example, uh, uncut hair on women and uh, short cut hair on men, and uh, which another example where Paul speaks very clearly about it. And so I, I've heard many people say, well, you can't preach about that. You'll, you'll push people away from the gospel. And I, and I think, as you've said, articulated so well in the article, well, my goodness, was Paul not concerned with people being saved? I think he was. I think he was. Yeah. Now, we understand this might not be the very first lesson we teach when someone, you know, when we're doing a Bible study with someone, but at some point, if we love people and care about them, we're going to help them, and we'll get into why loving them matters, because as, as you're going to point out uh, later on, it, it, this yeah. plays in so deeply into some of the insecurities, especially that women are facing today, that is generating loads and loads of, of unbearable pressure and pain in their life that is unnecessary and hurtful. I wanted to mention this book that you mentioned. Um, I don't know how to pronounce is it. Is it Finja? Finja Gunn? Finja. 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 I'd probably, it'd probably be Finja. Finja Gunn. I'm not sure either, but well, whoever uh, Finja is, we're sorry. But uh, the book, The Artificial Face, A History of Cosmetics, uh, Obviously, you'd read this book and were impacted by it, and the book seems to have dealt with how cosmetics isn't unique to our culture. Can you give us a little history lesson on cosmetics and history and the implications that history has for us today? And is that a book we should all go buy? Is that something you recommend? You know, it's written from uh, a research paradigm. Um, from a platform. It's not against or for, it's just a history Mm. of cosmetics. And what drew me to it was it's very difficult to find this level of degree of knowledge on the subject. Mm. So what really got me was the title of the book from somebody that is has no vested, as far as I know, no vested argument for or against, and I'd probably fathom 
that that this person would not have any vested thing to say it's wrong to have it. But the fact that this person named the book The Artificial Face, just it, that's what grabbed me. Mm. Um, and so as I started reading through this, the first thing that really came up to me and when we approached this subject in the church, I, I just, it stood out to me that number one, uh, cosmetics or the application of what Gunn talks about, the artificial face, because what an addict, what an accurate term, the artificial face. That just, it got me. Um, the, the more that I got into this, number one, everybody knows this, but but this author really brings out that this is nothing new. You know, civilization, uh, as long as we know, has engaged in cosmetic decoration. Uh, one of the quotes from the book was, women and even men, it seems, have always had a fascination for changing their appearance mm. with the aid of plants, powders, dyes, depilatory devices, and other artificial methods. And so... When you go through this book, it's bringing you through the history of cosmetic application, um, and and what she what this author calls and again I don't know if this is a guy or a girl Senya Gunn. Um, what this author uh, basically outlines is that uh, history the history of cosmetics. Uh, you go back as far as some of the earliest civilizations, they were using it as camouflaging. Mm. So some of the original uses of it, which what do hunters do today? Yeah. Uh, a lot of them, what do uh, Marines or, or, or highly trained, they camouflage. It, it's a, it's the use of, of facial paint or body paint as a means to camouflage, to blend in with your surrounding. It's a survival tactic. Um, uh, the writer goes into that they used it for aggressive situations to, to provoke fear. So you'll see this even today. A lot of tribal uh, groups, let's say in Africa, they will paint themselves up. Now, there's a lot of superstition there, uh, which gets into that third thing, social or spiritual regions. But a lot of times they'll paint themselves in a certain way because they're trying to invoke fear in their opponents. And you know what's crazy is you see this in nature. Uh, like if you ever see a documentary on birds or certain animals, there are certain times where they will uh, demonstrate colors or different things. There's a natural tendency to use color or, or uh, a, a, the modification of a normal appearance to something aggressive. Mm. And so what this author brings out is, number one, uh, you're not going to be able to go anywhere in, in antiquity and not find the use of some form of, of cosmetic uh, in, in history. Now, when you look at this, though, um, you find that over time, as, as the primitiveness of humanity moves forward into civilized cultures, that there's the painting of de designs, tattoos, oils and fragrances, hairstyles, and what this author brings out is that it had a primary means of enhancing or creating beauty. And one of the quotes was, quote, to enhance the mood, convey a meaning, or define a social or sexual condition. Yeah. 
And so this author begins to outline that while there were primitive means for this, and we still see that today, I mean, that's still evident today, it began to merge into the primary reason for it was to enhance one's beauty, affect one's mood, define a social or sexual condition. Sensuality. And yes, that was one of the big parts. And um, this, this statement from here blew my mind. Is that She makes this statement, this author makes a statement, uh, and what really stood out to me was she talked about cosmetic mutilation. Mm. And, and the statement was made that this was the historical means by which people, quote, suffered to be beautiful. Mm. That really stood out. Yeah. So they would file their teeth, they would tattoo, they would pierce, they would cut, they would deform physical features, which all of these things we see today. Yeah, it's not like that's primitive. It sounds like current culture to me. Right. So this author pointed out that undoubtedly, and here's a quote from this book, undoubtedly personal vanity and a desire to appear attractive to the opposite sex are important reasons for cosmetic decoration. So the author brings us to ancient Egypt, where you have cosmetic beautification, eye paint, rude cheeks, lips, wigs were common. The ruling class, if you go look at the pharaohs, they had false wigs. Uh, false beards, there's embellishment with jewelry in them. Um, and then you go from Greece to Rome to the Middle Ages, and Gunn brings us through the history of cosmetic beautification and embellishment. And, and, and I just wrote down some, in that article, I talked about some of the very key points. So the 17th century, quote, excessive cosmetic artificiality and an exaggerated attention to personal vanity became historically synonymous with a dashing cavalier and his lady. By the 18th century, men and women, they're, they've got the elaborate show of cosmetic artificiality. There's powdered wigs, face powder, which, by the way, the face powder contained incredibly harmful amounts of white lead, which is just staggering to me. So this is the whole suffering to be beautiful premise. Um, 19th century, the extravagance. I found it interesting, and, and I haven't dived into this, but the 19th century, there was a little bit of a dip um, than prior centuries. But by the time you get into the 20th century, full blown. The theater, oh, the theater, uh, the on screen stars, you've got nail varnish, eyebrow pencils, lipstick, mascara, powders and foundations, complexion creams, rouge, eyeshadows, and, 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 and that's just to name a few. And America became, and we are still today, the largest beauty industry in the world. And I put this out in the article. By 2025, the beauty industry, according to Forbes, is projected to be an $800 billion industry. Isn't that mind-blowing? It's staggering. I mean, my goodness. You know, you mentioned the dip in the 19th century, and I think it'd be fascinating to try to understand exactly i think i do think religion played a role in that and and that kind of leads me to the next thought here when do you think cosmetics and the focus on artificiality really started creeping into american christianity and by that i don't just i don't mean the apostolic church um 
just Christianity as a whole, because there was a brief period in American history when most denominations would have shunned the use of cosmetics and, and any kind of body modification, including tattoos. There was a time when, you know, the Baptists would have opposed tattoos as much as the Pentecostals and, uh, and, and so forth. At some point it really bled into mainstream Christianity and we all, the apostolic movement always seems to be a little bit behind the curve. And then it, before it bleeds into our movement, um, what do you think was the catalyst? Where, when do you think that really started changing? Is it in our lifetime? Um, not, not our lifetime. I think it, I think we've all always had it. I remember growing up and um, even before my time, I know that, that, that we began to see, even in, let's say, the more classically conservative Pentecostal churches, um, you know, you would have tinted face cream, mm. and it was primarily used uh, for acne, people that had acne. Uh, it was a way to cover up the acne. Now, again, men were not, I'm getting ahead of myself, but men never felt a pressure. Uh, at least I didn't, and at least anybody that I know of prior to my generation, never felt the pressure to put on a colored face cream. Um you know, I think, though, that the church as a whole, beyond ourselves, began to probably really see a shift uh, to where this began to emerge probably, this is just anecdotal, probably the 70s, mm. um, following the sexual revolution yeah. uh, that began to develop in the 60s. And some of it is, is I think that I think the church was very overwhelmed by what happened in the sixties. I, I, I personally, and I've talked to other pastors from that generation. I don't think the church did a very good job dealing with um, the sexual revolution and the hippie movement in particular. It was so much so fast. Had, it was so much so fast. But when you go back to that generation, and this is a topic for a whole other setting, um, I think that that was a very hungry generation. They were looking for truth. And I just think we were so overwhelmed by the, by the, the tidal wave of societal shifts that were coming out of that. Um, you know, because that was actually a very natural generation. You actually did not see much. But I think following that, we began to see society move, move into following the sexual revolution, the sexualization even more so. Um, of, of, of society in a way that, again, back when Hollywood first came out, a lot of what was on the screen was very taboo yeah. to the church culture. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go back to some early Disney films. Um, I remember reading on this one time where a young lady cut her hair off as a sign of rebellion. It was in a Disney film. Um, mm. and it was just, it was presented as it was just, wow. Yeah. Like that was, was that was wild. Father. Shocking. Right. Scandalous. Right. Yeah. And, right. So I think once you get the sex revolution moving, there's a lot of the style things that used to be taboo that became normative because there was so much at one time. And again, as culture changes, unfortunately the church changed. 
in a broad scale. And so I think later on, I do know when you go back in history, I do know Tertullian wasn't okay with it. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. One of his quotes is, for they who rub their skins with medicaments, stain their cheeks with rue, make their eyes prominent with antimony, sin against him. I mean, I, I do know that the early church fathers were not a fan, and that's going to be in, a, in, a, in another article that I write. And, and you can go historically through, and you can find and identify, again, like modesty. There were things that were not accepted. So I would probably say it was around that time, 70s, 80s, that we started to see the introduction of, like I said, um, you know, tinting creams. And uh, again, and getting ahead of myself because I want to get into that, it plays directly into the psychology of a person. Well, I think from my anecdotal experience growing up in church and also being born in the 80s, I do know that as television really i know television was around long before the 80s but it really took hold in a uh, a really pervasive way in the 80s late 70s and early 80s and then churches started really being on television and things like that and that's when you started seeing i think at least from my perspective a real uptick in a desire to appear a certain way on screen and off screen and all of those things mm-hmm. and to be perceived as relevant and uh, and to be culturally accepted, a desire for that. So, The Painted Saint, you you that's kind of your subtitle in the article. And you mentioned, mm-hmm. and I agree, the uptip, uptip in live streaming, the uptick in live streaming really has opened our eyes to all kinds of things because now we have a window into hundreds and thousands of churches that we didn't have before. And we see this disturbing level of cosmetics prevalent, even in apostolic churches. And with, with that in mind, you make a point I've been trying to articulate for years that artificial beauty is antithetical to everything healthy and empowering to women. So why is it still okay for our culture to tell women they aren't beautiful or acceptable until they artificially paint or inject their faces with something? You know, here uh, as a church planner, it's been, it's been very interesting. I have, I have not had to really uh, dive in and, and, and I, I do have a biblical um, outlook and I do believe the Bible is very clear about avoiding uh, the artificiality that, that we're talking about. I have not had to really spend much time using uh, the Bible. Uh, and I don't come, I, I don't walk in this church and say, if you're doing this, you know, bless God. But I have approached it with most of my church, you know, men and women, because we're living in a day now where men are becoming, starting to become very active and wearing it. Mm-hmm. Yes. I have approached it from the, you know, the divine ideal premise is, you know, where we see shirts that are developed by a lot of women out there that says, you are good enough. And I have approached it from the standpoint of number one, nothing is more counter, as you brought out, you said there, nothing is more counter to the quote, good enough, unquote, mentality that is being posited by uh, the 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 church feminist, 
And, and to clarify this, I believe in strong women. I believe that women have the capability to, 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 to be entrepreneurs, to lead. My wife is more brilliant than me in so many areas. I believe in the empowerment. I believe in a lot of the, the paradigms that come to a biblically founded ideal of woman empowerment. I'm 100% And, and, and I'd like to chime in as well that my wife is better at everything than I am. And that's, that's the absolute <laughs> truth. That's <laughs> so. <laughs> well, you just said that you just said the safe thing. She'll, she'll, she'll honor you for that. But you compliment each other as we do, as I do with my wife. Um, and so here's the deal that's really stood out to me. I don't go around looking. Um, I have not like, you know, I have not become like what they call a social media troll and, and have gone through every church that I can find. And I'm looking to see something I don't like. Number one, I don't like that. It's just not a part of my mentality. But when I am shown a sponsored link or it's just every day I'm being presented with, I'll see, live streams and I'll see uh, social media posts that everybody's reposting and some woman there talking about something relevant and empowering. Yeah. I can't help but notice that some of these very same women that are promoting the empowerment of women are, are, and, and they're influencers to young girls. They are literally caked with layers of foundation, blush, they're edging their face to show their cheek lines. It's so transparently evident that they are wearing makeup. And when I see that, I think to myself, oh, my goodness, you are trying to empower young ladies and other women and tell them that they're good enough the way they are. And yet you are buying in to the societal, this isn't just a sin church thing. You are buying into the societal paradigm that has pressured women for years to not only be treated as sexual objects, mm -hmm. but, but you are buying into the premise that has put upon women that you are not good enough the way that you look. And, and let me clarify this. I don't know a man, and Ryan, I doubt you've had this temptation one time, <laughs> who last minute has felt, man, I need to go pick up salsa from the grocery store, who even worried about the three zits on their face, <laughs> the acne they're dealing right. with, the, 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 the blemish, the skin tone. I don't know a single man that has society putting pressure on him to cover up his imperfections before he leaves the house. And you know what's sad, and you know what's sad uh, is that oftentimes it's, it's psychological, and you might could speak to this, people think they've got an imperfection, people with perfectly clear skin tone and, and perfectly... Um, perfectly fine people are still feeling the need they they just women just can't leave the house without putting all of this on and sometimes what's really tragic is it's it's actually not enhancing their beauty it it sometimes it's it's actually kind of off-putting and i say that respectfully yeah. but there's a there's kind of like this there's this psychological feeling that 
I think most women have in culture that they just can't leave until they've put their face on. Yeah. And you know, and, and I hear what you're saying there and I'm a hundred percent in agreement. I think as a father of three young boys, I think I look at this to tag into that. I look at this as number one, I want my boys to learn the true empowerment of a woman. And I want them to learn that, that women are more than the sum total of their appearance. Yes. Because, you know, the, the, as, as, we, as you texted me earlier, the pornification and the sexualization of our society regarding women. And we've seen this through the Me Too movement. We've seen the, the, the accurate response that has been developed in many cases towards that over-sexualization of women. It doesn't mean that men will not find a woman sexual. That's ingrained in us. But the objectification of a woman has become so prevalent that what, what in a sense, women are doing by getting up, and, and let's just be honest, um, one of the, the, the rites of passage that young ladies are being taught today from a very early age is they're taught earlier and earlier how to put how to put on their makeup mm-hmm. and and what it, what is that saying to a young child now that here's what's crazy about young children many young children that 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 prepubescence that that early stage they lack a lot of the blemishes we become uncomfortable with and and something that nobody's wanting to talk about that the industry of cosmetics and, and porn itself is revealing is that we are trying to create this fountain of youth. We want to look younger. It's like we're wanting to achieve that prepubescent ideal as adults. Well, as you grow up, your face changes. You go through natural things. Your face has acne. And the list goes on and on. But when you sit down and you start teaching a young lady how to put on her makeup, teach her how to put it on her lips, how to put it on her face, you're teaching her subconsciously the fine art of artificiality. Mm. You are developing in that young person's life, in that young person's life, you're teaching them that when you see something wrong with yourself, guess what? You have a way to cover this. And then when you add to that social media, entertainment, Mm. the Photoshop industry, the fact now that, and I see this, that even young, you don't see a lot of men doing filtered uh, social media posts. You don't see that. But you see now the prevalence of the filters that are being uh, how many how many minutes does does a young lady today spend, even after she has her makeup on? How much does she spend altering the photo mm. with filters? So what's what's begun to happen is we're creating this inequality that the world says we should not have, and that is it's okay for a man to be all natural but it's not okay for a woman to be natural. And so think about it. How many times have you seen where they will, 
they will chase down a celebrity leaving the gym and get a picture of a celebrity woman without her makeup. And that's a front page article. Yeah, it's a big on deal. One of their pop paparazzi based deals. And, and, and what it's trying to proclaim is the, the normalcy of that, of that, of that woman without her makeup. And when I look at that, it's tragic to me because number one, what did that female celebrity, what are you telling her? What are you saying to her by chasing her down to get a picture of her without her makeup? You are screaming something. Do we chase men down because they don't have makeup on? Right, right. Do do we post things like my goodness? Uh, so and so had he has a uh, he has a mole on his face or this this celebrity has acne. Did you ever hear that when Justin Bieber got started when he went through facial changes? No, he was just this. They promoted Justin Bieber as this this ador- adorable child star developing adolescence. But you take the same premise with a young girl, and they'll point out her acne, they'll point out the issues with her face, they'll point out how her eyebrows are not are not perfect. What it's done is it's created this terrible, what I consider to be an abusive paradigm. It is in our abusive. Mm-hmm. That women are not good enough if they don't cover up their what's perceived as imperfection. And, and let me just use this word because we'll get into this. I call this today an image war. Mm. It's an image war. And the cosmetic industry and the social media platform and the porn industry and all these industries that are playing together, I call them image terrorists. Wow. They are hijacking. They're hijacking the insecurity of women and they're selling insecurity and don't think for a moment don't think for a moment they wouldn't love to do it to men as well if they could ever get a foothold to do it but um at least for now it's a very small subset very small subset of men who would be interested in that kind of thing although it is growing i'm afraid but but for decades now it is plagued and I think to use your word, terrorized women, I really believe that. Can you imagine? I, I, I sometimes like to flip the script because, mm-hmm. you know, the church is so often accused of being legalistic or, uh, you know, we have so many requirements and standards and things of that nature. And I, I've often said to people, can you imagine if a pastor got up and, and had to preach from the Bible, ladies, you're not beautiful the way God made you. So you're going to have to go uh, have someone uh, poke holes in your ears. Uh, you, you know, you're going to have to go get something uh, injected into your lips. You're going to have to change your hair color because your hair color is no good. Um, and, and you're going to every day, every day, you're going to have to get, you're going to have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars uh, painting your face every morning. And don't you dare go out in public unless you've, you know, really, 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 fixed your face because can you imagine how if the flip were uh, the the script were flipped how the world would <laughs> accuse us of being horribly oppressive and legalistic to women it, for for telling them such things and yet that's what the world does every day and no one thinks anything about it 
But you know, Ryan, you know what we're gonna, you know what we will be charged with here. Mm. We'll be charged with two things. Number one, we will be told from a lot of people in the church that utilize cosmetics that they don't feel any of what we said. Mm. Number one, which I think is insincere, insincere, uh, because it's a it it costs a lot of money to put cosmetics on. It's an intentional process. So I, there's, again, there can be, the second thing is, is we would be labeled with the woke term mansplaining mm. because we're men mm. I see. And, and, and how dare we. <laughs> okay. So yeah. do you mind, do you mind again? I, I feel like I'm going to hijack this thing. Do you mind if I just get into a briefly the psychology of this? Yeah, that I'd, I'd love that. Okay. So let's just take it at case point. Okay, so we have an image war being waged against young ladies. I, I don't think anybody can disagree with that. Um, social media, you go look, the vast majority of anything that's inappropriate on Instagram, Facebook, whatever, is the unfortunate sexualization of young ladies, women, who are, are dancing a certain way, showing themselves a certain way, there is obviously the societal pressures on young ladies and women to become sexualized. Yes. And, 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 and I know that's not their intention, but remember, this is the generation where celebrity fame of a Kardashian came from a sex tape. Mm. And, and I think it's important for you to understand that there is such a desire for people to be known and to be accepted and liked, that what a signal that sends, that one of the quickest avenues of becoming a sensational person is to expose yourself and do things in public that you should never do. But and as my mom would it, say, it, it does attract attention, but it attracts the wrong kind of attention. They're wrong, but this world is taught that that's expression. Mm. And, 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 and the world has gotten so crazy now. So we'll just not take away that there's an image war. The cosmetic industry, it, 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 it sells insecurity. It's, it's, they put the perfect in front of you. They Photoshop everything. You can, and you can, again, you can go and you can look at the before and afters of Photoshop. They get rid of cellulite. They get rid of any form of, of, a, of a wrinkle of fat. They get rid of love handles on a woman. They and they do the same to men when it comes to magazines, but there's such a uh, a culture that tries to paint the perfect. It, you're not good enough the way you are. You know those mm. that that normal weight you have. You need to be skinnier. You need to look prepubescent. You need to have the weight of of a younger girl. You, you need to be thin. So we have all the image force and the image terrorists. And, and the like worship of so youth. The psychology. Yes. Yes. Which we'll have to do another episode because I do it on addiction with porn and how it has catapulted America into, I believe, the epidemic of pedophilia. That's my opinion. Oh, uh, yeah. But, we need to talk about that sometime in depth because I believe that's the wave will. that's coming. That's the wave that's coming. And, and we will. So let me start with this. Have you ever heard, Ryan, of what's called B? D, body dysmorphic disorder. Yes. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard of that? I have. Okay. 
So if you go to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, under obsessive compulsive and related disorders, you'll find BDD. So to give us an idea of this, in 1997, it was put in there under that term. Here are the three primary criteria that you have to demonstrate to be diagnosed with this considered to be a disorder. Mm. Number one, an appearance preoccupation. Now, let me clarify this. What it means is you are preoccupied with one or more non-existent or slight defects of flaws in your physical appearance. Mm. Preoccupation is usually operationalized as thinking about the perceived defects for at least an hour a day. And that's by adding up all the time spent thinking about it during the day. Throughout a single day. Given. Sure. Right. So that's number one criteria. Number two is a repetitive behavior. That is, you perform repetitive compulsive behaviors in response to appearance concerns. Mirror checking or avoiding mirrors, excessive grooming, skin picking, reassurance seeking, or changing clothes. Other BDD compulsions include comparing one's appearance with that of other people. And if that last criteria is not met, they're diagnosed with other specified obsessive compulsive related disorders. Mm. Look at the third one. It has to have clinical significance. So the preoccupation causes clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. Mm. Now, when I read through those three criteria, I immediately just go, whoa. Yeah. And if somebody reads through that and doesn't go, whoa, they need to read it again. Because the prevalence of those three things seem to be almost everywhere today. Now, It'd be hard to first. find someone who doesn't fit that description. Exactly. Research indicates, and this is going to come up in another article, that at least 1 in 50, up to 2.4% of the entire U.S. population has been diagnosed with this. More troubling is that it is a disorder that is found among the average of ages 16 to 18. Mm. Those symptoms are recorded as having started as young as 12. Now, think about this. The predominant age demographic affected by this quote-unquote disorder is 12 to 18 years of age. Heartbreaking. That's not a coincidence. No. Okay, so moving back into this, the image wars. Now, let's move a little bit further. I was reading a CNN article in 2019 titled suicide rates in girls are rising study finds especially in those and this breaks my heart ages 10 to 14. this is from the nationwide children's hospital in columbus so they did research and they found out that 85,000 deaths of kids and teens 10 to 19 years of age happened between 1975 and 2016. Mm. 85,000 mm. were suicide. 80%, you ready for this? I'm this not sure. Number were, 80% of this number were boys and 20% was girls. This is where it gets really scary. Now, let me just 
clarify this psychologically. It doesn't mean when you read statistics like this that girls are not attempting suicide. This is not attempted suicide rate. The difference between boys and girls is aggressiveness. Yes. Men, men are typically, they have higher statistics of suicide because they use more fatal or aggressive manners. Yes. I did know that. Men men tend to be... I don't even know how to phrase it the right way, but men tend to be more successful in in the tragedy of of committing suicide. That's right. A lot of men will use like a gun, for example. Lethal force. Whereas girls will try to overdose on pills. So there's less fatal means. So it doesn't mean that girls are not trying to commit suicide at elevated rates. It just means that they're not as successful. And I hate to say it that way. Right, yeah. I understand. so now, 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 take all that I just said. When you look at these, the rate of suicide among that demographic, uh, 10 to 19, peaked in 1993. Mm. But it began to decline until 20, uh, 2007. And when you go to the JAMA, J-A-M-A network, there's an article that reveals that from tw- 2007 forward, it began to climb. Now, this is where it gets staggering. While boys were still more likely to kill themselves, the study began to recognize that the gap was narrowing in a very alarming way. So from 2007, according to research, rates of suicide among girls 10 to 14 increased almost 13% every year Mm. in contrast to 7% among boys of the same age. That it's staggering. That's staggering. So, so when you look at this, I started thinking to myself, what would it be that we would see such an alarming rate of suicide among girls 10 to 14 and 14 to 19? I think I know, but I want to let you say it. So here's what's crazy. I started looking at this, at this, at the study. Most of the researchers say we suspect Social media. Social media. Mm, That's when it, that's when it. mm -hmm. mm. So let me paint this picture. So this is directly from Yahoo Finance. At the end of 2004, I'm only using Facebook. I'm not using TikTok. I'm not using Instagram. uh, None of that, which I think TikTok is worse than anything else. And and that's a whole nother. Whole nother deal. Yeah. at At the end of 2004, there were 1 million on Facebook. 2005, there were 5.5 million. 2006, there were 12 million. April of 2007, 20 million. October of the same year, 50 million. Now we're at that 2007 mark. Notice, 13% increase in, in girls committing suicide. Yeah. Bam. We've just went from 12 million to 20 million to 50 million in one year. Now, August 2008, there's 100 million. January 2009, 150 million. February 2009, 175 million. Fast forward to 2012, 1.01 billion. You know what it is today? Mm, No, I don't. 2.91 billion active monthly 
users. Wow. And so you know, I don't know, I, I don't know where it felt. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No. When I look at this and you start taking other research, mm-hmm. there is a correlation. And this is, again, this is research been proven that indicates teenagers and young adults that spend considerable time on social media. There's an elevated 13 to 66 percent higher rate of depression among that age demographic. I believe so that. Here you, here you have an entire demographic being bombarded and they're spending upwards of three hours a day and they're being bombarded by filters. They're being bombarded by the perfect celebrity, the Photoshop, the cosmetic industry, the entertainment industry, and what is every one of those things promoting? A perfect body, a certain kind of, of body. I mean, we've all heard this, and I don't want to be crude, but we all talk about the, the, the Kardashian glutes. They're all after the Kardashian look. So you have this entire platform that is screaming every day, filter your pictures sexualize yourself, look this way, talk this way. And the cosmetic industry who is making billions of dollars yeah, off the, the and the selfie syndrome lady. Mm-hmm. Yes. Off of, well, again, if you take a selfie, you're not going to want to not have makeup on. You're not going to want to not have those imperfections covered up. So we have this unbelievable world that is screaming through multiple platforms. You are not good enough. You're not pretty enough. Your hair is not the right color. You don't have the right kind of eyelashes. They're not long enough. Your ears are too big. They're too small. Your nose needs to be fixed. I can't even get into the rise of Botox injections happening in apostolic movement. Mm, yeah. And so let's, let's factor all this in. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Let me no, I, I want to hear all it. this in. And you've got young ladies everywhere. And, and, and one of the reasons why we're seeing the predominance of cosmetics start to really increase in, in the church community is because we are foolish to not think that this same pressure is not attacking our young ladies. And you get female church influencers getting up there every day who are taking their faith, covering their imperfections, and they're looking at young ladies at, at, at Esther conferences and go down the list saying, you are good enough the way you are. With all of that pressure being bombarded against them, the world saying you're not good enough, you don't look good enough, you got to cover this, you got to cover that, you got to work on being artificial. They are looking at role models in the church, females, females, who are screaming to the young girls, I didn't think I was good enough when I left my house today because I had to put all this on me. Mm. What kind of signal, Ryan? How are we being countercultural as a church resisting that, that damnable, damnable idea that women have to fix their appearance, but men don't? It's astounding. 
It's really astounding. You know, I, I, I was so curious because I, I looked it up while you were talking because I just read something the other day about when Facebook first added the like button, which mm. which really changed social media yeah. uh, for good because, you know, everything started imitating one another. All the different platforms start uh, implementing different things with their own wording. And Facebook added the like button. And so it, it went from being just like, you know, a, a diary that you post out there that people can look at to now you're getting that dopamine hit where someone hits that like button. And now people are addicted to how many likes did I get? And or did I not get any likes? Or I, did I get so few likes because I'm ugly? Or what's wrong with me? They got a lot of likes. I didn't get a lot. Of, and and uh, and then you add the share button and uh and the popularity factor. And I, I just would be curious to see how those statistics climb and, and how they uh, mm. coalesce with the addition of, of the like and share button and things of that nature. And now all the other platforms as well that do those similar things that has to mm. have a I, Well, I know, I mean, it's got a psychological impact yeah. on people. It leads to depression and, uh, poor self-image and all kinds of things that are leading, I believe, to the spiked suicide rates of young people in particular, but really, if, sadly, of, of wow. a lot of demographics. You know, there is, of course, and I, I, I deal with that on the addictive side, um, you know, there's a dopamine dump that occurs with ever, with a like. Yeah. And, um, you know, so that's a whole nother subject, but, but you're exact, you're absolutely right. And again, um, not being able to get your quote unquote drug, which is, is social acceptance, um, man, it leads to, I mean, uh, there have been stories of not, not just because of bullying, but there's been stories that because kids were not receiving a like on a certain thing, they took their own life. Yeah. Because they were they were looking for affirmation online, and they felt they already felt rejected. They were already depressed. They were already uh, exhibiting suicidal ideation. And when social media did not, I mean, let's be honest, Ryan, how many times do you post something that it makes you feel good to see that twenty people liked it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm 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 not immune to it for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Imagine being a young adolescent who is bombarded by a day and an age where there's everybody's airbrushed, everybody's doing something relevant, everybody's being popular, everybody's being shared and liked, and you've got all these insecurities, and the culture around you says you're not good enough, and you are trying to develop identity, which I don't even have time to get into it, which is why we have an, a prevalent, I mean like a 400% increase in Los Angeles County of, of, of young girls now identifying as trans men. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's like one book and I've got the book somewhere. It says it's, it's the new anorexia of the day because people are trying to navigate identity and hormonal changes and they don't, they feel like they're aliens in their own body. And, and that's the new culture influences. Well, Hey, you might be a boy and guess what? they're they're being celebrated and they're getting attention if you become one of them you're you're being you're you're rising to the top of culture and becoming accepted and and even that is a is an evident counterpart to our conversation 
Oh, yeah. I think there's clear connotations. I mean, we've already touched on it. The rise of pedophilia, the rise of of, uh, young um, people who are self-identifying as trans in some way. And so often it's it's not even really a a a so much of a sexual desire as it is as you just mentioned an identity crisis where it's it's trying to find meaning or purpose or community or or uh s- something that they can connect with and and attention as well because it is a part of the human condition to desire a certain amount of attention and uh you know if you're traditional you're not going to receive attention in our culture no. And, and that's why I think, I think that it's abusive to, I just, I think it is just absolutely derelict of, of a parental duty and society's duty, especially with young ladies and women to promote these. Here's another statistic for you. And it's just, it just, it stands out to me. So Heather Gallivan did a study on eating disorders. She's a leading, leading researcher on eating disorders. And uh, this is directly from her deal. She said that at the age of six is when, quote, societal cultural factors seem to start influencing body dissatisfaction. So Mm. they've proven that sociocultural factors start influencing them at the age of six. And so her study with both men and women revealed that only 34% of men were dissatisfied with their bodies. In contrast, 80% of women, Ryan, mm. 50% of that 80% were teen girls. And 90% were 13 to 17 expressed feeling tremendous pressure to be skinny. And guess who they said put that pressure on them? The fashion and media industry. Oh, no doubt about it. No doubt about now, it. Now, here's, here's what brought this home. 70% of normally weighted women felt they needed to be thinner. Mm. Normally weighted women. These are women who are the weight they should be. They're normally weighted. Their BMI is okay. They are normal for their, for, for, for their height and, the, and, and their age. 70% were not happy with their weight. And this goes back to the worship of youth, I, th- I believe, as well, because yes. as, as women in particular, you know, because we live in a, in a, just to tie into all of this, we're in a culture where it's perfectly acceptable for a rich, old, fat, broken down guy to marry a 20-year-old girl and and uh and everyone thinks that's normal and fine and and all of that but uh you don't see that in the reverse and if you do see it in the reverse people think it's weird and strange it's because we've sexualized women to the point to where uh you know we we have all of these weird inconsistencies in culture and so as women get older they feel this un unbelievable pressure to look younger in ways that's that's not even it's not healthy it's not possible and it's really not even attractive but uh it's the pressure that that we are all feeling and men seem to be more exempted from this pressure than women are it really is an oppressive you want to talk about a you know a, a 
you know, uh, inequality. Yeah, inequality. I mean, there you go. It's right there. You said something in the article that I thought was, I mean, it just jumped out, screamed out at me. You said insecurity sells. And that yep. phrase struck, it's, yep. I mean, it's just so true. Um, how can we, can, can we take a moment and try to talk through maybe some ways as the church and as pastors yeah. that we can combat this hypocrisy in a compelling way because uh it, you know it, it's good to rail against it and all of that but we also want to be effective and compelling yeah. and 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 yeah. also caring and sensitive so how can we combat this insecurity i think that we have a winning argument to tell people you are beautiful you are good enough yeah. truly you truly are good enough we we don't have any qualifiers that go with that when we say god made you good enough we don't mean you have to go out and you know tattoo your face we mean god made you good enough i think that's a winning argument am, am i wrong yes no you are completely right and to answer your question i think the first step to understand is while this can seem what we're talking about and what we have been talking about can seem to be like it's railing against the practice of cosmetics among some church women. It's not the practice that they're engaging in that we're railing against. It's the, it's the latent underlying idea mm -hmm. that is being propagated that we as pastors, as husbands, as fathers, you have a daughter. Um, yeah. That, that we identify culturally that it's happening and we're, we're not going to bury our heads in the sand. So what we're doing, number one, I think what we are doing is we are speaking for women. I think that we are standing against the bulwark and the, uh, as a bulwark against the tidal wave of the world that says you're not good enough. So, I don't think that we're railing against it. I think we are appalled that women among us that want to be influencers are engaging in the practice of that which undermines the very platform they say they propagate. It screams of their own insecurities. And what I would like to tell to those women is you don't need that stuff. And all you're doing is you are buying into the insecurity sales point of the world around you who says you can't appear the way you do and not be confident and not be bold. And I want to apologize to every woman that will listen to this. I am sorry yeah. that society has sexualized you. I am sorry that men have been swept into the sexualization and the objectification of women as far back as history goes. I'm sorry. Now, I'm going to be honest. With you. you don't hear a lot of people say this. I'm sorry that even in the Bible, we see the, 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 the view of a man towards a woman and the fact that Leah's appearance yeah. was highlighted. And yet, you don't find, you find that David was ruddy and good looking, but my goodness, it lets us know Leah. And I'm just using that as, as it doesn't mean that Leah was being objectified, but again, it was how Jacob, I believe, viewed her, yeah. her yeah. appearance. 
And, and, and I want to apologize to every woman that has grown up in a culture that says you're not good enough. But I'll tell you right now, if I had a daughter, and I want to get into the next thing you said, but if I had a daughter, I would want her to, to grow up every single day and hear from me or a mom. Yeah. You are beautiful. Yeah. You are, and when, they, when they start developing acne, oh my goodness, don't make it a stigma. Make it a, 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 a rite of passage. Make it a part of life. You know what? We, we all, I got an extra so many pounds on me. Life is full of imperfections and, 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 and the body is, is going to sag and it's going to get old. And you know what? Age and live life with dignity towards the divine ideal. You're okay to live that way because you, you are exactly how God made you. I mean, let me ask you, Ryan, before we get into that, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I just, this, it's my pet peeve. And I think we're on the same page here. Um, you, did you have you, if you have a dog do you do you paint your dog <laughs> right no no yeah that's right can you imagine if someone tried to paint a whale it would be considered animal cruelty yeah mm -hmm. they might put you in jail now they are starting to dye the hair of poodle oh my goodness whatever i'm seeing that now they're wanting to, to but again it's not natural. And, and I always go back to, and I don't have the time biblically, but the Bible talks about hair. Death's not nature itself. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and one thing that really screams at me to anybody wanting to use it, that's not natural. Like yeah. your natural skin tone, nature, like if you get in the sun, your skin will darken. <laughs> that's nature. You're right. But, but it, it's, it's not natural to put something artificial to darken your skin. It's not that which, oh, it's going to, that's going to split hell wide open. Anyway, let me get to that thing you asked. Uh, Cause I recognize, I don't want to hijack this. It's just, it's my pet peeve. So how do we help? So let me use me. And then I want to, I'd love to hear what you're doing. So we've won a lot of people. Uh, we have not had the backdrop of, of established, church members building this church so we've just won people so when they come in we we haven't created this you know culture where you know they see what everybody else is doing it's totally different one of my first new converts that we won spent upwards of four hundred dollars a month on cosmetics that's staggering wow four hundred dollars a month and when she and her family started coming, I never, I never teach it as though it's a sin. I, I don't come at it like you're wrong, you're horrible. What I do, though, and I've said this, I don't even have to really open the Bible much. I started teaching about being good enough, mm. the divine ideal, who God wants us to be. And so I start asking questions. What are you saying to your daughter? When you are putting on your makeup, yeah, what are you saying to your daughter about yourself, your face, beauty? What are you promoting? I don't even have to tell anybody that. They can answer that for themselves. Yeah, yeah. So, so one of the ways that I engage in that here is, number one, I'm very, very big on teaching divine ideals. 
nobody's ever going to achieve perfection. We know that. Nobody's ever going to achieve becoming 100% everything God intended for us to be. That's a process. But what I do teach is I say, I think it's very important to not follow man's ideal, but to always go back and say, what does God like? Yeah, that's good. What does God want? So where do you take them? You take them back to the garden. And of course, we have failure there and we have all these things. But what was one of the first things, Ryan, that that sin tried to produce in humanity? What did they do in response to their nakedness? They tried to cover themselves. Boom. Yeah. They tried to cover themselves. That speaks immediately that one of the initial things that occurred with sin was not only self-awareness and a conscience between right and wrong, but it means that they perceived their current condition as something being wrong. Mm. And it had to do with their appearance. And of course, we know that we're naked. So what did they do? They tried in their own means to find a way to cover what they felt was wrong. Okay? Wow. I don't find it a coincidence that makeup is a cover-up. I don't find it a coincidence that, that, that the blemishes that, that, that women have, makeup becomes a solution. I don't find that correlation between the cover-up in the beginning with the cover-up today. So what, what does God do? God shows up, and God has the proper cover-up. In other words, Man has his idea of covering. God has his idea of covering. Yeah, that's so good. And so I teach our people, and I I tell young ladies, and I tell young men, my job is to not take the cue from a world that is interested in, in selling sex, in selling sexualization, in selling insecurity, my job is not to take a cue from what they think cover-up should be. My job is to go to God and have God establish that. So, yeah. for example, if there's, if you have, um, if you're, you're not content with the way your face looks, you know what my opinion is? That is a thing that can really be brought to God in prayer. Mm. I think God, and again, who do you hear talk about this? Nobody. Yeah, yeah. Who? What's really the problem? The face or the feeling? Mm, yeah, our perception. There you go. So what does God do really good at? God has a way of fixing the inside to change the perception of the outside. Wow. And so you see this with people that were traumatized at a young age when God starts working in their life. If they can start feeling differently, they can start seeing differently. And so, again, I think if I engage God, God doesn't have to cover up. All God has to do is let there be a reorientation within my life to gain a revelation 
of how beautiful and handsome I am in that, as David said, I am fearfully and wonderfully. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's the revelation that's missing. And that's the revelation the cosmetic industry is destroying. Well, and it's Only such a God. surface, it's such a, a surface level uh, focus on humanity where we're so focused on the outward and the cover up, the covering of the outward. It's, it's really, it's really incredible. You know, I do have a 14 year old daughter who's yeah. beautiful. And one of the things that I really have worked hard to do is to constantly affirm to her. And, and I realize, and when I say this, my heart hurts because I know there are young girls right now that are grown and who are growing who have not had a loving, godly father who would affirm to them daily that they're beautiful. I read a book one time that talked about women who are successful versus women who are unsuccessful and women who have good image versus women who have poor image of themselves. And the key factor is their father. What did their father speak into their life as a child? Because that's the voice they hear for the rest of their life. And so tragically, so many women, because the family has been so destroyed, have not grown in an environment where they have been told by a father, a loving father, you are beautiful the way you are. You are you are beautiful. God made you beautiful. And you're a beautiful person. Your body is beautiful. Your mind is beautiful. You're talented. You're smart. All of these things. And so I work so hard to affirm that in my, in my daughter because I want her to know uh, that God made her beautiful. She is beautiful just the way she is. She doesn't need to change anything. God made her beautiful. And, you know, we've been through the acne stage. She's kind of coming out of that and all of those things. But, and like you mentioned earlier, you know, we, we spoke of it as a, listen, this is part, this is life. You know, this is growing up. This is what you go through. This just means you're growing. This is, this is one of those parts of life, you know, and you, there's good things about it, bad things about it. But you're beautiful. You're beautiful. And um, I think pastoring in so many ways, and maybe you'll agree with this, so much of pastoring I feel like is parenting in a sense. Good. Where Good. you're, I think as a pastor, of course we can get up and preach against sin and all of those things, but I try to approach all issues of holiness towards men or women, but especially towards women, that this is beauty. The Bible speaks of the beauty of holiness and, yeah. and that God, as you already said, that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, that God is the great designer. Who are we? Who are we to tell God that his design isn't perfect, that his design isn't beautiful? I, I yeah. tied into this a lot with an article that I wrote about hair dye, should Christians dye their hair, where I, I one of the avenues that I went down in my prayer and, and study is the idea that God is the creator. He's the great designer. And we have to be very careful about looking at ourselves in a way that's contrary to how God views us. And the world is promoting 
really an antichrist spirit that says God didn't make you beautiful. God didn't make you good enough. This, I think this is why we have so much anxiety and uh, yeah. pressure in our lives and that you know we're not good enough. We have to meet this standard of beauty, this standard of success, this, all of these weird societal pressures that are put on us, which instinctively, I think the youth of our day are, are try, some of these weird movements that are rising up, they're, they're rising up almost almost uh instinctively against the pressures that they're feeling but they're not identifying the right pressure they're not realizing the the actual problems in their life and so they're they're rising up against institutions that are not actually creating the anxiety that they feel uh and so there's all this angst but it's being directed uh in the wrong places in the wrong directions um, I think the church can point, I think the church can point to the true angst and anxiety and image issues that people have and say, this is why you're feeling this way. This is why your insecurity is so strong. And, yes. and here's how you can be free of those shackles. And they really are shackles. You mentioned someone $400 a month. Can you even imagine? I can't even afford that. Um, yeah. that's a shackle that's, that's bondage. And people yeah. of course will accuse us, um, of, of wanting to put women in bondage and put men in bondage and all of those things. The reality though, is it's the reverse to be bound yeah. by these, these cultural pressures is bondage. It truly is. So that makes me want to jump to a, a question that I, I wanted to ask you. The article that I wrote on hair dye, I got a lot of objections to it and a lot of support as well. And here's one of the objections that I got, and it fits into what we've been talking about. People will usually say something like, well, we aren't rejecting God's original design, but sin brought imperfections into the human condition, including physical imperfections like sickness and disease and all these things. And we're comfortable modifying those imperfections. How, how, what is, what's your knee jerk response to that? So they're basically saying, just to clarify your question, you know, they're, God's not going to have a problem because we're, you know, sin created imperfection. We're just helping, helping those imperfections. Essentially, yes. you're saying, mm-hmm. help me out here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, again, um, Dogs have imperfections. Uh, animals have imperfections. Life is filled with imperfections, and trees have imperfections. The, everything has imperfections, and I mean, what? Imagine. Try to imagine with me if you were born with a child that had uh, some some form of just uh, disformity that could not be fixed. Imagine living your life trying to cover up that, that, that disformity. Mm. What would that do to a, to a child? What, what would that do? So again, I look at it as, and, and this isn't original to me, but I look at it is the, the age old paradigm. And you've heard this is paint is typically, or color is added to things which are not alive. And I'm sure you've heard that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, a house is dead, so we have to add color to the house to make it look alive. 
cars are dead. They don't have life. They don't have a soul. They don't have inner beauty. So we have to paint them. So again, I look at everything is that it's the, 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 the response to imperfection in life. Again, I like to use the two words. Is there anything positive we can really come up with with the two words cover up? Mm, yeah. I mean, how does that word, how does that word even work? How does that, how do you put a positive spin to, I'm going to cover something up? How do you put a positive spin to that? What are you saying about that which you are covering up? You're saying that it doesn't need to be seen and you don't want it to be seen. You're playing into your attitude or your feelings or your insecurity towards it. There's just nothing good. You know, that comes from, in other, every time I try to add color to something, I am trying to artificially change that which exists. There's just no way around it. It, it makes no sense other than in the case that you had. And this is something I think there's two sides to one coin. It's either vanity or insecurity. Yes. Yeah. It's one or the other. One or the There's other. There's no middle ground. And there both of those no things are ground. very dangerous. They're very dangerous. And hurtful. And not only, that, not only that, but here in Portland, we have a phenomenon. And if you come, you'll see it. Everybody has this certain, I don't know why, I haven't figured it out yet, but ev- there are more girls that will have a certain tint of like a bluish purple mixed in with their hair yes yes it's, it's huge in I, atlanta too yeah okay i don't know why but everybody seems to go get the same tent i Everyone. don't know what it means i don't know what it stands it's got to have some somewhere it started as as something culturally significant there's no way around it i don't i don't get it but i know it's huge but again it's a brand it, it does promote something and I'll, I just tell people this, you can tell somebody uncomfortable with aging by coloring their hair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. The, the sad reality is, and we know this, it's kind of like alcohol, the story on alcohol. It's like, you know what, uh, will, a, uh, will a glass of wine, will that affect you? Well, it probably won't, but you know what, we don't we don't partake in it because of all that it stands for and all the bad that comes from it. I don't even have to get into the Bible. What talks about, don't look at, don't look at wine when it's red in the glass and at the last bite it like an ass. Mm -hmm. All I can say is you can point to for every one person that may try to do something and try to argue it's not for vanity or insecurity. There's a hundred other people that are doing it because of vanity and insecurity. Yeah. Yeah. You cannot point to the use of any form of cosmetic manipulation or artificiality and, and, not, and not move it towards something that's destructive and harmful in our culture. Yeah. Can, can I just say something my wife has said, said that's really amazing? Please. Um, so in the past, she's made this statement. She was like, when my boys are dressed in something nice, uh, she'll say, instead of saying, I like that shirt or I like whatever it may be, she says, I, I you look nice in that. Mm. 
She doesn't say those clothes look good. She always specifies that it's about the person in the clothing. That's right, the person. So the, 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 that way the value of someone's eyes, their style, whatever it may be about them, it's about them and not somebody else's preference. That's powerful. That is staggering. Yeah. Yeah. And so just, just that alone. And I, I texted her cause I really wanted to know that for sure. That's the premise that we're really talking about. It's the you it's, it's not the clothes. It's not all the stuff you can do. You are handsome. Yeah. You are beautiful. Yeah. That's and powerful. So that, yeah, that's incredible. So I've got a last question for you. It's a really deep one. I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> I know you're kind of a foodie like I am. Tell me about the food in Portland. What are you guys known for? What's the best place to eat? Is there anything unique there? What's going on in Portland with food? Uh, well, uh, prior to the burning down of Portland, mm-hmm. I, I, there were more options. Some of our, uh, some of our greatest places are shut down uh, because of wokeism. Um, but I will say this, we're not necessarily known out here for Hispanic food. Um, we have one good place, but I think it's a chain. Mes Colunas is really good, but we're known for gourmet, mm. really hip gourmet fusion style some of our uh some of the greatest iron chefs actually have restaurants in portland oh cool um we have incredible sushi um you know and it's all sustainable because they're really big on you know killing killing fish sustainably (laughs) um anyway but you know what the heart of this of this town is it's not just food which you can find it's just fusion. It's all gourmet flared. It's coffee. We are known for coffee. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, as a as a coffee evangelist, mm-hmm. um, my job in life is to bring people from the dark side, i.e., Charbucks, <laughs> to. Uh, <laughs> you want to talk about hate mail? This is where the hate mail is going to come in. <laughs> Into the light side of a reg of a because of what does the Bible say we're called out of darkness yeah. into marvelous light is marvelous light yeah and uh, so I always tell people that if you want to come to Portland and do the coffee thing please don't walk into a boutique coffee place out here which they're 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 numbered in the thousands um, don't walk in there and ask for a hazelnut syrup. Mm. Um, because they will stare at you and say, well, we do have the fresh hazelnut. We do have the fresh, uh, fresh cream pressed from the udders of three goats mixed with. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) So coffee is our primary scene. And then just any form of gourmet food, uh, that's really mixed into a fusion you can find here. It's just, I've never been anywhere quite like it. So a lot of that, like uh, Asian American exactly. fusion and things like that. Oh, they've got that. Um, you know, we, uh, we, some of our stuff, like you've got a lot of Spanish, we got a lot of uh, like tapas, 
Uh-huh. A lot of yeah. Spanish places are very, very common. A lot of authentic. Um, you know, we got food trucks all over the place that will serve just kind of a smorgasbord of just unique things that you would typically only see in like a in like a, a, a culinary type magazine. You know, but here How it's, it's common. And, of course, our Thai food is the diet. Mm, well, hallelujah. I'm coming to Portland <laughs> so come now. Come on out. I love Thai food. Come My wife out. and I, we are big on, on Thai food. How neat is it? So, so Light Roast Coffee, that's where it's at in Portland? Yeah, you, you're not going to find anything above a city, city to low city plus roast. Yeah, it, it, yeah everything's done right here. Wow. We, we, yeah, we're done right here. Um, all, all your dark roasted listeners, I'm glad I saved this to the end. Um, <laughs> because they just stopped the recording. So, Did God actually call you to Portland or did you just want the coffee? <laughs> no, what, what it is, is God knew that he had to have some things here to keep me here. It's like that little taste of heaven in the midst of uh, all kinds of turmoil, huh? Wow. Uh, I love it. Yeah, there, he knew that I would need to sip uh, an espresso from hard coffee while the building next to it burned down. <laughs> he just knew. <laughs> wow. Well, man, I cannot wait to have you back on. Let's uh, Let's set it up for real soon, okay? Sounds like a plan. All right. We love you guys. I, pre- I appreciate you. I love y'all. And thank you again. Uh, I enjoyed the conversation and, and, and uh, I love what you're doing. So keep on doing it, man. I love, we love what you're doing too. And we're going to, we're going to say goodbye now. Thanks everyone for listening. This has been a long episode. I'm glad you stuck around all the way to the very end. And until next week, God bless all of you. <laughs>